You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Welcome to our Jewish Matters podcast, and we're on the third part in our series on the soul and the afterlife. And uh, tonight we're going to talk about the nature of the afterlife, uh, what is the Jewish view on reward and punishment, on heaven and hell, and how do we live on in that spiritual realm? We're going to talk about as well, does Judaism believe in ghosts? Is there such a thing? Um, and uh, if so, what, uh, what is the nature of that? So these are some of the topics um, that we're going to that they were going to be addressing. Now, the, um, we saw in the last couple of sessions that uh, the soul journeys from this world to the next, the body dies, and the soul goes into a different dimension of reality. And in that different dimension of reality, the soul is being pulled in two directions. In one sense, it's being pulled up, so to speak, back towards its origin. Two weeks ago, we talked about the soul coming from the divine and therefore, in a sense, wanting to rejoin with the divine, being pulled towards that. And at the same time, the soul, because it was housed in the body, so to speak, because the body was its receptacle for so long, the soul still is attached to the body and doesn't want to leave it. And so it's pulled down. It wants to keep that connection with the body. And as the soul starts to kind of journey, move on to the next dimension, we talked about uh, it having less and less presence in this world and less and less awareness of the events of what's going on in this world. And so now we come to the next concept. The next concept uh, which can also be found in the near-death experiences that we talked about. We talked about stories of people who had come close to dying, were brought back, so to speak, their lives were saved, and who described a series of events, seeing themselves from above and the outside, going through a tunnel, uh, being drawn towards a light. And the next phenomenon that they described was uh, their lives being passed before them. And sometimes some people actually describe this experience, this phenomenon, when they're in a near-death, just accident, life situation, even without being in a coma. Uh, but also if they come back from that coma and they, it almost felt like uh, they were being, use the word judged, evaluated, all their actions were being placed before them and their merits and their dismerits. Uh, there's the uh, uh, TV show that's been showing The Good Place. I think it just ended uh, at the beginning of this year. And you had this scenario of uh, people going to The Good Place, which is supposed to be heaven. And in that good place, uh, they're being kind of... Uh, evaluated, all of their actions are presented before them and a series of points is set up of, uh, of how they did in life. And I won't give spoilers, there's some interesting twists and terms. 
But this is a concept which in Judaism is called Beit Din Shel Mala. Sense is called the court above, the court in the higher realm. And the idea behind it is this. There's a teaching in Perke Avot, in Ethics of the Fathers. It says, uh, this is chapter 3, 1, Akavia ben Mahalal said, uh, Mark well three things and you will not come to be overcome. You won't be overcome by transgression. You won't do wrong. Know where you come from. Know where you are going and know before whom you are destined to give an accounting and reckoning. And who is that before whom you are destined to give an accounting and reckoning? And it says, before the King of Kings, the Holy One, blessed be he. So there's an idea that when our souls get to that next state, uh, there is, so to speak, a, a judgment going on. Now, once again, the judgment is not lollipops and uh, and uh, and pitchforks, okay? It's a much more sophisticated concept than that. And the idea is this, that when our soul sheds the body, so the soul has real perceptions of truth, what's really true in this world. Uh, the one near-death experience described in the Talmud is the story of Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi's son, who was very ill. It said he was in a coma, and a number of days he came out from it. And they said, what did you see when you were gone? And he said, I saw an upside-down world in which those who were below, meaning below in this world as we perceive it, were above, were in front, and those who were in front, who in this world we think are the important people, people in the public eye, politics, stars, uh, you name it, in that world were in the back. So what you see is not always what you get. Uh, the true value of people goes beyond the recognition that is given to them by society and um, and so in the world to come, that's what he was saying. He had a near-death experience. He was in the world of truth, and he started to see the true value of people when he was in that world of truth. So, uh, in a sense, I mean, it's a scary idea that we the we no longer have the physical body to create a dissonance between what is actually true, which the presumption is deep in our souls, we know what is true. But we use all sorts of defense mechanisms. We use rationalization to say, oh, you know, yeah, I can just cut some corners here. Uh, we use deception. We choose not to look at something, right? We think about it. It's uncomfortable. We push it out of our mind. We won't be able to have those defense mechanisms. And we won't even want to rationalize because we know it's not true. And we'll be in the world of truth. Now, what is the idea of everything being uh, recorded? Okay. Uh, another teaching, the ethics of the fathers, the same idea. Put your mind to these three things. This is in chapter two, number three. And you will not come into uh, to do wrong, to transgression. Know what there is above you. An eye that sees, an ear that hears, 
and all your deeds are written in a book. Scary idea. Scary thought. Now, Adlux Huxley, the uh, writer and philosopher from the uh, first half of the 20th century, he had this understanding of science, which now is even more advanced, that everything, all of our memories are recorded in our brains. It's all there upstairs. And what the brain actually does is not has to struggle to record everything, but has to have a filter to not have all of that come into our minds at the same time. So we have, I think it's the reticular formation, the part of our brain that is able to, uh, to filter out, right? When a mother can sleep through ambulances in the street, loud noises, but their baby cries, all of a sudden they're awake, right? Because our brains have this filter that, uh, that prevents us from being overwhelmed. So according to Huxley, everything is there. And now we understand memories as you know, chemical reactions in synapses, and then the data is stored. Um, so, uh, so potentially it's all still there. So you don't even have to say, you know, uh, once again, an anthropomorphic understanding of God writing everything out in the book. And one idea of, um, you know, on Yom Kippur, it says the book is open, the ledger is open. But it might be a much more organic process where all of those experiences are still there in our memory. And they're all open and unveiled to us. And so, uh, and so we have everything kind of being brought in front of us. And that comes with a great sense of shock. Uh, because in addition to the idea that our soul is pulled, the pain of our soul being pulled in two directions, there will also be, in a sense, the pain of the realizations of all of the lost opportunities that we could have had. Opportunities to do good, to impact someone's life, to actualize our potential, to not waste our time. And also all of the lost opportunities of the things we did wrong and wasted our time in doing and the damage we might have caused to ourselves and to others and to the world. And that realization, Rabbi Ari Kaplan talks about this in his book, in his article on the soul and immortality. And he says that realization will also bring upon us a sense of shame. Right. Sometimes when we realize we've done something wrong, we have that feeling of shame already ourselves. But imagine all the more so that it'll be, we'll be with that shame in front of the Almighty. And it's not even clear in front of other people as well. It says, uh, you know, um, there are teachings about how uh, we will be reunited with others in the next world. Um, and many of the teachings in the Torah say that when a person dies, uh, they're gathered unto their people, gathered unto their forefathers, right? So what does that mean? Uh, so it could, could mean that we'll be reunited with our, those who've come before us, 
with great spiritual personalities as well. And also the idea that uh, many rabbinic teachings in the Talmud talk about how uh, when we get to the world to come, all the righteous will be dancing and saying, this is our God, and we glorify him. So we will have also the filter between us and the Almighty will be removed, and we'll have complete God awareness and complete connection to God's light and goodness, but that'll make our deviations even more painful. Now, the good news is that the Jewish view of tshuva, of repentance, is that we can, in a sense, wipe out those blemishes. We can correct those blemishes. We can rectify them already in this life. And the Talmud in Yevamot 105 says that, um, Blessed be God who gave us shame in this world and not the next So the rabbis say it's a blessing to have those realizations and even sometimes those uncomfortable experiences in this world because it'll get us to change and therefore to undo the consequences, the impact, and even the kind of accounting of those actions in the next world. So, uh, you know, that's the good news, right? Now... um, The Talmud has another very powerful teaching where it says this. It says that in the world to come, the Yetzahara, the lower voice, the negative drive will be slaughtered, so to speak, will be shechted, will be undone. Sorry, this is straight. Uh, And it says that when it is, it says the righteous will be crying and the wicked will be crying. The righteous will be crying because they will see how they were, how we were gripped, how they were overtaken by that negative drive, by the Yitzhahara, by that lower voice uh, that is telling us, yes, of course, you know, all you want in life is daiquiris by the pool and you're going to do anything to get it. All you want is another pint of haagen All you want is sit on the couch or to, you know, mindlessly... Uh, zombie out online and the righteous will say that time that pull was so great and yet we were able to overcome it that's why the righteous will be crying and the wicked will be crying and they'll be crying because they'll say we realize how 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 uh, how much of an illusion it was how really buying the next thing is not the purpose in life. Having that house in the Hamptons is not my ultimate goal that I'm going to work so hard for, that I won't have time for myself and my family. And we'll realize that all of those things which were pulling at us were really just ephemeral, were really a counterfeit currency to the true spiritual, meaningful experiences that we're seeking in life. And... The wicked will be crying because they will realize how those things were such nothings and how did I get drawn in and deceived by them. So that will be, once again, this the two-way pull. And so we talked about uh, the idea of Gehenom. It, does Judaism believe in hell? So Gehenom is actually the valley, valley of Hinnom, which is in front of Jerusalem. And it's a valley where the Canaanites used to bring human sacrifices. That's the horror of Gehenom, of hell. 
Uh, there is a uh, avant-garde a playwright, Ionesco, French playwright in the mid-20th century, and he wrote a play called Rhinoceros. And in the play, there in, in this room, people are put with the people who, in life, they couldn't stand, right? And they've got to be with them and deal with them and around them all the time. And I guess, in a sense, tortured by them. And the message is, that is hell. Um, and not learning to be able to uh, overcome their differences with them. Um, and uh, as we mentioned, in The Good Place, uh, there's an interesting twist about what hell is. Uh, so we talked about Gehinom, uh, the Jewish view, as being rehab for the soul, but that rehab is a very painful process, can be a very painful process. Um, and so it's the pain of the reality of our missed opportunities and the reality of what we did wrong and the destruction we might have done to ourselves and others and the missed opportunities because of that. It's the reality, the pain of being pulled back towards the physical and yet trying to break away from it. And he says that the soul will want to connect to the spiritual pleasures, but it won't have the ability to do it. So kind of like having an ice cream, being starved, having ice cream put in front of you and your hands tied behind your back and unable to lean forward, right? So the spiritual pleasures will be there. You'll see them, but we won't be, but you won't, the soul won't be able to connect to them because of, uh, because of what, what it went through. And so, um, and so that's the idea that the soul is being pulled in two different directions and the pain of those realizations and the missed opportunities, this is the Jewish understanding. But the soul in going through that pain will then pur be purged of all of those kind of negative aspects and negative dimensions and will be able to move on uh, to that good place. That's the good news. Now, there's another interesting question, which is, you know, what about, you know, Hitler may his main be blotted out. Uh, Saddam Hussein, um, these evil people who cause so many people to die and to suffer, right? Do they have a divine soul? What happens to it? Is hell or purgatory or Gehinom, is it a rehab for them? So Nachmanides specific, so there is a concept in the Torah that calls, that is called karet, being cut off. And first of all, it means cut off from one's own spiritual essence. And then it means cut off from, it could mean one's life is shortened, but it can also mean cut off from that connection of the spiritual realm in the world to come. And Nachmanides specifically says that there are individuals who go downstairs, and generally Gehinom is an 11 or 12 month process. Uh, once again, the lining up of these spiritual concepts with the practices of mourning is that we only mourn for 11 months. We do the Kaddish for 11 months for a parent because it says that the righteous only have at the most 11 months of rehab and then they can move on. And the wicked get 12 months. But Nachmanides says there are some individuals who have who, who, who are so evil 
that in a sense they're cut off from the divine essence or they have so uh, uh, plugged up that divine essence that their soul never gets the rehab and never moves on to, to the other place. So that's, uh, that is said and it kind of how that works is hard. I don't really understand. But if Nachmanides says it, he was not just one of the greatest medieval sages, he was also known to be one of the Kabbalists who seemingly would have access to these teachings of the deeper levels of reality and of even the world to come. Because we said once again, you know, how do we know about these things? So these were revealed to, through the oral tradition of Kabbalah, to the great teachers. Some of them are mentioned in the Talmud, many of them, the deeper understandings are mentioned in the, in the, uh, in the Kabbalah. So this is our understanding of, of the world to come. And particularly, we're going to see that it's also the mitzvot will give us a guidebook of how to cultivate the spiritual dimension of our soul and uh, the, those things that are forbidden in the Torah are, are so because they will lead to more disconnection. So now we'd like to move on to the next, uh, the next area that we're going to talk about tonight. We spoke last week about the question of whether the souls, how long a soul stays connected to this world, and whether the souls know about what's going on in this world. And both were in the affirmative. The, the soul has a gradual process of leaving this world, so especially the first year, it can still be present in this world coming and going. We talked about the different stages. Till the burial, it's completely present. The seven days of Shiva, it's disconnecting. And then for the year, it might come back at certain times and be present. So the question is, um, what's the custom of visiting a grave? So there are sources that do seem to indicate that even after 12 months, the soul can still be connected to the grave. And that's why we visit the grave site. There's an interesting custom where we put a stone onto the gravestone when we visit. You've seen that. So what is the reason for that? So uh, seemingly there's an aspect where we are, in a sense, part of the burial process. We're giving honor to those who have passed. But one could say that when the soul does come and visit, it might not be when we're there, but leaving the stone will let them know that we've been there and we have visited. That's one understanding of it. Now, if the soul is moving on after 12 months, how do we understand it's still being connected to the grave? So we talked about the three parts of the soul, the lowest being the nefesh. And there are sources that say that the nefesh, in a sense, is still connected to where the physical body was. Remember, the nefesh is the life force, the lowest part. So it's still connected to, to the body, even though the divine soul has moved on. And, uh, and there still must be a connection between the two, although I really haven't, uh, I don't have a clarity on that. But, um, uh, but another thing we've got to ask, which is if the soul moves on and is now in a dimension of eternity beyond time, so how is, what does Kaddish, saying Kaddish do? Okay, we say Kaddish during the first year, and let's try to understand what Kaddish, the purpose of Kaddish is overall, 
And then, what is the idea of saying Kaddish on a yurt site a year after the person, two years after, three years, ten years after a person passes away? Hasn't their judgment, so to speak, been resolved? And aren't they now in a dimension beyond time? So how does our timeliness change anything for them? If the sources say Kaddish is a merit for the soul of those who have left. So there's an interesting midrash. Um, Kaddish is really a prayer that is not necessarily a prayer for the dead. You look at this text, doesn't mention anything about those who've died. And Kaddish is really a prayer talking about uh, praising God, glorifying God, and bringing godliness into the world. So the, the first pr principle to understand is that when we say Kaddish, what we're doing is we're showing the Almighty, and especially the story is that Rabbi Kibla was once walking along. And this is quoted in the medieval sources. Rabbi Kiva was walking along and he saw a man there and he said, what are you doing here? Rabbi Kiva, who himself was a Kabbalist, uh, the Talmud says he entered the pardes, the orchard, and uh, he saw this man and he said, what are you doing here? You should be on the other side. And he said, I can't go there. I'm stuck. And my son doesn't know Hebrew and he can't say Kaddish for me. And so I can't move on. So Rabbi Akiva reassured him and said, don't worry. I will teach your son Hebrew. Really Kaddish is in Aramaic, but the Hebrew letters. I'll teach him to read. He'll, and then he'll be able to say the Kaddish. So sure enough, that's what Rabbi Akiva did. He tracked down the son. He taught him to read. And then he received from the man a message uh, he heard that uh, he indeed what thanked him that he was now able to move on. That is a source for saying Kaddish for a deceased relative, especially a parent. And the idea is this, that the child is showing the Almighty that this person, this parent, the parent impacted me in a way in which I understood the message of bringing godliness into the world. In other words, I'm carrying on the, the task that the parent brought about in this world, that the parent was a person who tried to bring God into the world, and I am carrying on that task for them, and I'm showing the Almighty that, that my good deeds, and by the way, it doesn't have to be Kaddish, it could be giving charity, it could be doing a good deed in memory of a parent. People dedicate all sorts of things to building a synagogue, helping poor people, helping brides get married. They do it in memory, not just in memory, but in the merit of the soul of the parent because all that the child does, especially if we consciously do it as being having been inspired from the parent, is merited towards the parent as well. So how does this work? So the idea is this. The analogy is like when you throw a stone onto the water and after the stone goes under the water, you no longer see it, but the ripples are still going outward. So too, the ripples of the person's life are still unfolding in this world, especially through their children. And so that's how, even though the soul is now in an eternal state, from our point of view, each year more actions are brought about in the merit of that parent's soul, and the soul, we say, so to speak, on the earth side, we say, may the soul have an aliyah. May the soul continue to rise and rise and rise. So once again, how the beyond this world, how the soul in a world of eternity 
continues to evolve, I can't tell you, because our minds cannot conceptualize the idea of a reality beyond time and beyond linear causality. So somehow there is a causality, but in their reality, it's not linear. In ours, it's linear. In other words, the actions of next year will have the impact upon the soul next year. So let's leave that as what it is, but suffice it to say that uh, that is the understanding of how St. Kaddish for someone who's moved on and passed away works. So the soul is evolving, the soul is moving on. Can the soul come back? And if it does, can it come back in more than just a spiritual consciousness? And this is where we get to the very interesting text. Uh, Nachmanides, once again, the great medieval rabbi and Kabbalist, says in his commentary to Genesis, it says that when Jacob passed away, the biblical text says Jacob perished. And all the commentators say, the Talmud says, what do you mean he perished? He died, right? So the rabbis say, Yaakov Avinu lo mate, he didn't die. And then the Talmud asks, but he was embalmed and buried, we see. So the Talmud gives a different answer that he lives on through his children. But Nachmanides actually addresses this and it says that uh, Jacob didn't die because the souls of the righteous are bound up in the bond of life. And he said, and the souls of Jacob hovered all for all time, and he was, so to speak, wearing a second garment, guf hashani, or guf hasheni. What is this guf hasheni? This was a secondary body that he says others done at certain times. And he refers us to the Talmud in Ketubot. The Talmud Ketubot has a very strange story, page 103a, about Rabbi Judah the Prince, who was instrumental in the editing and redacting of the Mishnah. And it says that every Friday night, before he passed away, he said, leave my bed and put on the light. And he used to come back Friday night to his family. Very strange teaching. Um, but the implication was that the family even uh, and others could see him. Why? So it says on a certain Friday night, a neighbor came to the door and uh, said to him, be, you know, be quiet, Rebbe is here. As soon as Rebbe heard this, it says he didn't come anymore because he didn't want people knowing that he had come back and wondering why had earlier great, great righteous people not come back. So, from the implication of this, his household knew when he was there and had some perception of him. So what is the second body? So what is it composed of? How does it work? So there is, in the New Age literature, something called the astral body. And the Zohar, the book of Kabbalah, gets more into this. It says, uh, those who are about to enter this world are dressed in garments. Okay, the soul is dressed in a garment. And it says, when we enter this world, we're dressed in a physical garment. But when we leave this world, we're redressed in the other garments that we had to take off before leaving this world. 
And those world, those garments that describe the book of Daniel, Hamaskilim Yazhiru Kazohar Harakia. It says the enlightened ones will shine like the Zohar. That's where the word Zohar, the Zohar, the book is named after this verse in Daniel, like this, like the, like the, like the bright lights of the firmaments. And so there are Kabbalists who say this is literally a, a garment of light. Um, a student of Nachmanis, Rabbeinu Bachia, describes it as a semi-physical, semi-spiritual dimension. And this is a very interesting teaching in Nachmanides that he understood that there wasn't just spirit and physical, but there were dimensions in between. And there's passages on how angels can appear to people. It appears they also had this levush, some kind of uh, garment of holy light which their bodies took on. And so this is the understanding of, you know, what a, how we would understand the idea of ghosts, of an apparition of a person who's passed away who comes back. And the famous uh, counting in the book of Samuel when the King Saul has been deposed, he's told by the prophet, um, by Samuel, that he will no longer be king. Samuel then passes away and Saul is tormented by this reality that his line will not continue. And he goes to the witch of Endor and she conjures up Samuel and he appears to Saul. And he says, leave me alone. I'm not changing anything. I'm not changing my mind. So, um, so we see in the book of Samuel that in the book that Samuel the prophet, after he dies, appears to King Saul. And we have accounts of this in the Talmud as well, of Elijah the prophet, of course, one of the most famous ones appearing to people coming. And seemingly their appearance is also semi-physical and uh, garbed in this second body. Now, I told you in the past weeks that uh, when I gave these classes, I people come up to me afterwards and tell me stories. And these stories, interestingly, have started to have a pattern. So the first part of the pattern was that uh, people would tell me about, after someone passed away, the lights in their apartment flickering at opportune times. One story was a young man who passed away at a young age. And uh, during the shiva, the lights in the apartment would go on, off, on, off. They brought an electrician, they checked the fuses, the shiva ended, it stopped. And then about six months later, his brother, he passed away at a young age, his brother had a baby, the first grandchild, and the day of the Brit, the lights were going on and off and then stopped. Okay, weird, strange. I have a first-hand account from a friend of mine that uh, the patriarch of the family, who was a rabbi, he passed away. And the mother was going to sell the house, which all the children had grown up in, and they decided we're going to have a last Pesach in our home, in our family home. And so all the children come, and the grandchildren, during the Seder, the lights on and off, on and off, and then unexplainedly, the flickering stopped. Another area is with watches. So there are uh, counts of uh, Hasidic masters and great 
saintly Jewish personalities, when they passed away, the Baal Shem Tov passed away, supposedly all the watches in the room stopped, in the house stopped. Um, and I have a personal story. Uh, I told it last week when my mother passed away and I was in the apartment. So as she was being brought out, so a few weeks ago I talked about how I felt her presence kind of rise up when she was put into the ambulance to be brought to the morgue. But before that, she was being brought out of the apartment. And in the apartment, there was a grandfather clock. And right as she was being brought out at four in the morning, the clock started striking. Now that already was kind of eerie, um, for whom the bell tolls. But what happened was it was four in the morning and the clock struck three times. Ding, 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 and then stopped. And the next morning, I, and, oh, sorry, uh, the next morning I mentioned it to my sister. I said, that's strange, the clock struck three times. It was four in the morning. I said, yeah, it's an old clock, it, you know. So I wouldn't drop it. And someone else who uh, knew, who had actually uh, was close to my mother and said, when I mentioned this in front of my sister as well, said, I wind that clock every week up every week. It has a perfect mechanism, never misses a minute, never misses a beat. And I took that to be a message that she wanted to turn back time. She wanted to reverse time and kind of go back to when she was still in this world. So other stories of watches I could tell you, lights, watches, um, <laughs> some of them are rather humorous. Uh, someone in a synagogue I knew, his father passed away, he went back to England to sit Shiva, and he's sitting Shiva and a friend of his visits whose father did not particularly like. So the friend sits next to him. And there was a shelf above them with a plant. And unexplainedly, the plant just went falling off the shelf, turned upside down, and hit the guy in the head. So, make of this as you will. I mentioned the movie Ghost, where, uh, I won't give too many spoilers, but there's a, there's a coin that goes across the floor. Many, many accounts of this. But the accounts go even further. Because we're talking about can one have a perception of the soul? So one woman told me that her father passed away. She was from Australia. She flew back to sit Shiva. And she said, I couldn't sleep at night, three in the morning. I'm up in the kitchen. I look out in our backyard. And it was a, it was a, it was a, uh, a night with a full moon. And I look in the backyard and there I see my father. Almost a white appearance. And she said, you know, I didn't know what to make of it. I didn't want to tell anyone because they'll think I'm going crazy. But yet I really felt like I saw him. Until the next morning, the neighbor knocks on the door and says, you know, I wasn't going to come over and speak to you. And you'll think I'm crazy. But last night I was up in the middle of the night and I looked over into the backyard and I saw your father. So I've had people tell me that they were in a car accident and as the car was flipping over, they looked out the window and they saw their aunt who had passed away, her appearance there, and they felt she was watching over them. So there are many such accounts. I even have a first-person account, which 
I won't get into here, but this is corroborated by the Jewish sources that in fact we do believe in ghosts, that the soul takes on a spiritual body, and what is that body woven of? That body is woven, it says in the Kabbalistic sources, by the light of the mitzvot that we do within our lifetime. That is the spiritual presence that our soul can take on even after it has left this world. So, I'll leave you with these stories. Make of them what you will. But, uh, once again, they are corroborated in the Kabbalistic sources. So, we've talked about the concept of the divine soul and its eternal source in the Almighty. We've talked about the soul transitioning from this world to the next world in a gradual journey over the past three podcasts. And we've talked about the soul moving on to another dimension, going through a process of uh, judgment, if you will, of rehabilitation, of painfully learning the new spiritual reality. And then uh, whether it still has a connection to this world whether it can still know what's going on in this world. And so next week, uh, we're going to talk about uh, another dimension of the afterlife or the pre-life, and that is the idea of reincarnation. Does Judaism believe in reincarnation? Could it be that we have been here before or will come back? Why would this phenomenon occur? Can we know about who we were before or who we will be in a later life. And uh, stay tuned for that in our next podcast. And uh, have a good night, everyone.